Welcome to the Mulcahy Law Firm Podcast. For over 25 years, Mulcahy Law Firm has helped plan communities and condominium associations throughout the state of Arizona. The antenna of our Zoom, Facebook Live, First Friday free call-in, videos, and podcast is to provide a forum for board members and community managers to receive answers to HOA and condo legal questions. Please note, the content in these sessions are general in nature and is not intended to and should not be relied upon or construed as legal opinion or legal advice regarding any specific issue or factual circumstance. You should directly consult with an attorney for advice regarding your individual situation. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning, everyone. Hello. Thank you for joining us for today's first Friday free call-in for May. You were likely expecting to see Beth Mulcahy in her usual seat this morning, but Beth has a conflict on her schedule, so she can't be here, but we don't skip a beat around here. Today's questions will be answered by Mulcahy Law Firm attorney, Hayden DiLorenzo. I recognize many familiar faces this morning as everyone joins this Zoom, and people are also joining us on Facebook, so welcome. For those that don't know me, I'm Morgan Ronimus. I'm a senior paralegal, and I have been with Mulcahy Law Firm for 11 years this September. It's nice to see you on this Friday morning. Before I turn this over to Hayden, friendly reminder that if you haven't done so already, please submit your first Friday questions in the question answer box on Zoom or in the comment section on Facebook Live as soon as possible. And then Hayden will answer all questions or as many as we can between now and 10 a.m. We are gonna try to get through as many as possible. We already do have a lot. So if for some reason we don't get to your question, we will email you your answer today. So please include your email address, but I also have a good idea on how to find your emails as well for the most part. And due to the large volume of questions we receive, this free opportunity is limited to one question per association. If you plan on submitting a question live during the session, please include your HOA condo or condo name and your current role that will help Hayden answer your your question. Thanks for understanding. Before we dive into our questions today, I would like to introduce Hayden DiLorenzo. Hayden is an associate attorney on the MLF team, and our practice focuses exclusively on the representation of HOAs and condos in Arizona. And Hayden, I think you're coming up on your one-year anniversary with our firm, yeah, which is pretty exciting. <laughs> Here are some fun facts about Hayden. Hayden is an Arizona native, a Sun, De- Sun Devil ASU double graduate for undergrad and law school. We have a fun pack. 12 rivalry around here since I went to UCLA and Hayden went to ASU. And Hayden was a former member of the ASU's acapella group, La Capella. I promise we won't make you sing for us, Hayden, at least not today, maybe next time. So without further ado, Hayden, I'll let you take it over from here. Thanks for the introduction, Morgan, and thank you everyone for joining us today. Before we get started on our questions and answers, I'd like to just do a quick recap of what's going on in the Arizona legislature this year. So for those of you who've been reading our weekly Mulcahy memo emails or joined us for other virtual educational seminars, you know that Mulcahy Law Firm has been monitoring the Arizona legislature throughout this year and providing updates about the progress of bills pertaining to plant communities. The Arizona legislature is in the tedious process of approving the budget, so there may not be a lot of HOA and condo law bill discussion over the next few weeks. Since the end of March, two bills relating to community associations have been signed into law. So I'll just quickly recap these two bills. 
The first is going to be HB 2131. And this states that if a planned community's documents allow natural grass on a member's property after the time of developer control, the association may not prohibit installing or using artificial turf on any member's property. And then the second one is going to be HB 2158, which allows members to display association-related political signs not to exceed nine square feet on an HOA or condo member's property and gives HOA and condo members the right to peacefully assemble on the association's common areas. So these two bills will become law 91 days after the legislative session is over. And we're closely watching several other HOA and condo bills in the Arizona legislature that have a chance of passing this year. Each week, the Arizona legislature is in session. Our firm posts an updated summary of the pending HOA and condo bills. And you can find this weekly updated summary plus a full analysis of the two bills, which have already been signed by Governor Ducey, on the homepage of our firm's webpage at www.mulcahylawfirm.com. And we will also share this with you on Zoom and Facebook Live. Okay, so I guess we'll go ahead and move on to the questions we received, starting with our first question. This question is from a board member. With some people wanting some form of a security camera at their entrance, doorway, or patio, are there any specific rules for condominium use of security cameras? Okay, good question. So individual homeowners and condo unit owners do have a right to install security cameras and surveillance cameras on their property. However, in some cases, the device will capture more than just the owner's property, especially in condominium complexes where there is sometimes less personal space. So a device might capture motion from a neighbor's home or unit, the road, common areas. So owners should be allowed to install security and surveillance cameras on their property, but those camera cameras should not be capturing other owner's property or common areas, only the owner's property. The... Association's common area is technically not a private place, and therefore, there's not a reasonable expectation of privacy in those areas. Um, however, both homeowners and the association should avoid taking or using video footage inside another homeowner's home or unit where there is an expectation of privacy and where there could be liability under privacy laws. So that's something to think about. For a little more information on security cameras, we will be posting our blog on the matter in the chat. The blog is entitled Security Cameras. Okay, so the next question is also from a board member. And this question says, since this is an age-restricted association, we have had some homeowners complaining of children under the age of 18 living in a home. How can we verify ages of all residents in homes and other than fines, how can this be stopped? Okay, another good question. This question raises some interesting issues pertaining to the Federal Fair Housing Act and the Housing for Older Persons Act of 1995 exception. The Fair Housing Act prohibits discrimination based on certain protected classes like families with children. The Housing for Older Persons Act is an exemption to the Fair Housing Act, which allows communities to restrict based on age, such as 55 plus or age-restricted communities, provided that certain requirements are followed. So in this situation, our firm would recommend that the board contact the owner and request information about who's residing in the property, information such as their name, age, and how long they'll be at the property. You'll want to be careful when handling this situation. The child under the age of 18 could be disabled, in which case proof would need to be supplied by the resident. 
But if the child was disabled, the association may need to make a reasonable accommodation under the FHA and allow the disabled resident to reside in the property, even if they're under 18. But if it's found that the owner is violating provisions in the CCNRs regarding age, and there's no exception that applies, the association can file a lawsuit against the owner in superior court to get an injunction compelling the underage person to leave. Additionally, they can find the owner. And there's also the option to go to the Arizona Department of Real Estate to file a petition asking for an administrative law order on the violation. Just something to think about. Sometimes in these situations, there's a situation where maybe grandparents are watching a grandchild because the parents of the child are on drugs or other situations. Our firm in these kinds of instances would recommend opening the lines of communication, listening and trying to be reasonable. There may be a situation where having the underage person stay with the grandparents for a short period of time is okay and wouldn't jeopardize the association's 55 plus status. If you need more help navigating this situation, please reach out to our law firm for advice. And we've also got a federal laws cheat sheet, which we'll be putting in the chat now. Okay, the next question is also from a board member. Is it law to mail via post office ballot? Sorry, is it law to mail via post office ballots for annual meetings, or can these be delivered via email? And if it is law, is there a way to make it change to email? Okay, so pursuant to ARS 33-1804B for plan communities and ARS 33-1248B for condos, the answer to this would be, okay, so pursuant to these sections, not fewer than 10 nor more than 50 days in advance of any meeting of the members, the secretary shall cause notice to be hand-delivered or sent prepaid by United States mail to the mailing address for each lot, parcel, or unit owner, or to any other mailing address designated in writing by a member. Arizona law does not allow the official notice for an annual meeting to be sent via email. It must be via U.S. mail or hand-delivered. So in our firm's opinion, the association documents cannot be amended to override state law on this. So this notice must be sent via mail. Okay, the next question is also from a board member. Our association is considering video surveillance on our property for safety and rules violation enforcement. Can we do this? Okay, so this is kind of tying into our first question of the day. The short answer on this is yes. If you do install video cameras on the common area, you're going to want to be sure to let owners know that the cameras are not monitored live and in the event of an emergency to contact the police. And if your association opts to install security cameras, it's important that the board members do not misrepresent the quality or the level of security and still encourage residents to take additional steps to protect themselves. And if you'd like more information on this topic, please review our blog on security cameras. Okay, the next question is from the chairperson of the CCNRs and bylaws committee for this association. We finally convinced our board of directors that we need to put in place written rules and regulations that support our governing documents and also consider a few amendments. However, we are now being told that we must hold on to all rules and regulations as well as any amendments due to the Calabria Ranch case. Every single thing we do will need extensive legal review first. What is your take on this case, the new case law, and how it will affect HOAs? So our firm tries not to overreact or overcorrect 
when there's fine tuning to legislation or case law. Basically, the ruling in this case says that CCNRs can be amended to refine language, correct an error, fill in a gap, or change it in some particular way, so long as the amendment is reasonable and foreseeable. So our best recommendation in this case is that if you're currently thinking about amending your CCNRs, this case isn't going to be a stop sign for you. Um, it's basically going to be a good time for reflection where you want to make sure that you're structuring this in a way that the amendment, if challenged, will prevail in a court of law. And we're here to assist your association if you're in that position right now. And if you want some advice on how to best limit your liability and put language in your amendments that will protect you in the event that somebody tries to challenge the amendments based on this new case. Our office will also be sharing a copy of this case to Zoom and Facebook Live in case anyone would like to read it in its entirety. All right. So the next question is from a board member as well. We are a condominium association in Sun City made up of 56 units in 28 duplexes deemed condos. If the owners of our association reject a special assessment for repairs and painting, does the board of directors have the legal right to complete as much of the project as possible based on currently available funds on the condos where both roommates voted for the repairs and painting? The answer on this is going to be no. The association has an obligation to maintain all common areas and can't favor certain units over other units based on their support or lack of support on a special assessment though. The board should consider which areas need repairs and painting the most and start with those areas with the available funds for that purpose. Okay, next question is from a board member. Can you give more details about the new disclosure form our management company is convinced we should fill out? You indicated we might not want to. Since we have a current construction defects action, we are not sure whether to use their study as the defects we know about or have an independent inspection and use that list. Their list is the initial list we use to have an amount to start the mediation that will take place in late June or early July. Okay, so if an association is an Arizona condominium, the analysis on whether or not to fill out and return this condo project questionnaire addendum is complicated. Generally speaking, we do not advise condos to fill out this form due to the liability it creates for the association. Condos are not required by law to fill out this form. In our opinion, planned community associations are under no legal obligations to complete this condominium project questionnaire addendum. However, if an Arizona condo association doesn't provide the information requested by the addendum, property sales could be affected. For example, loans may not be given to buyers, escrows may fall through, etc. And owners may be negatively impacted if they're unable to refinance their properties or have to refinance at a higher interest rate because they can't get a conventional loan. This creates a tricky dilemma for associations. If they don't respond to the condominium project questionnaire addendum, they'll likely get pushback from their owners negatively affected by this decision. And if they do respond to the condominium project questionnaire addendum, providing additional information in the addendum may create future liability for the association and for the management companies that manage them. As such, associations need to be very careful as to how they respond on these addendum questions. Under Arizona law, condominium and planned community associations with over 50 or more units or lots are only required to provide the disclosure information listed in ARS section 33-1260 for condos and ARS section 33-1806 for planned communities. And relevant statutes will be shared by our firm in this session. 
Please contact our office if you have any questions on the questionnaire addendum or the required disclosure info under Arizona law. Next question is also from a board member. Regarding the new Arizona law, HB 2131, regarding prohibiting the banning of artificial turf, our association does maintain and irrigate the common areas and front yards of our community, so we can ban artificial turf. What if an individual homeowner is willing to pay for and be responsible for the artificial turf? Can this law be challenged by the homeowner? Okay, so just in summary of what HB 2131 says, First, it says, if a planned community's documents allow natural grass on a member's property, after the time of developer control, the association may not prohibit installing or using artificial turf on any member's property. Um, a planned community can, however, adopt reasonable rules regarding the installation and appearance of the artificial turf if those rules do not prevent installing artificial turf in the same manner that natural grass would be allowed by the community documents. and. They can also adopt reasonable rules regarding the location on the property and percentage of the property that may be covered with artificial turf to the same extent as natural grass and may regulate artificial turf quality. A planned community can require the removal of a member's artificial turf if the artificial turf creates a health or safety issue that the member does not correct and replacement or removal of the artificial turf if it is not maintained in accordance with the association's standards for maintenance. Our firm has been asked what some examples would be of artificial turf health and safety issues. And some examples would be health issues. For example, some say that this artificial turf could cause cancer. Now that's disputed, but that would be one example of a health and safety issue to look at in these kinds of situations. A planned community can prohibit the installation of artificial turf in the following situations. One, if it's installed in an area the association maintains or irrigates. For example, common areas, front yards, and other areas that the association is responsible for maintaining under the CCNRs. And if a planned community prohibits the new installation of natural grass on a member's property, the association can also prohibit the new installation of artificial turf on a member's property. Except that in that instance, an association may not prohibit a member from converting natural grass to artificial turf on the member's property. In short, the board could probably allow this if they choose to do so. Next question is from a resident. Our landscape committee agenda has this item, board approval, excuse me, board approval of Sisu removal this summer. No hope that these large mature shady trees will be replaced with comparable trees. I'm aware that some common area Sisu trees planted next to block walls have caused damage to homes, but not all of them. My question is, do residents have the right to demand the HOA assess trees on a case-by-case -case basis or to assess their own risk and sign a damages waiver attached to their property to save the shade? The answer is that the board and the landscape committee typically make these types of decisions after looking at a variety of different things, including damage the trees are doing, neighbors input, owners in the association's input, the shade the trees provide, in addition to a number of other things. I suggest you attend these meetings or write to the board or the landscape committee to express your opinions on this matter. Also, you may wanna consider joining the board or the landscape committee in the future if you wanna be more involved in this process. Next question is from a board member. It says, how to manage one, a resident's aggressive dogs poorly controlled, and two, dog poop frequently left behind in HOA common areas. 
Our firm suggests documenting these pet violations in writing by sending a letter to the owner for each violation and considering levying fines for the behaviors or violations. Um, if the dogs engage in any aggressive behavior towards residents or other pets, the board should consider contacting the county's animal control department to lodge a complaint. If the violations continue, you can contact our office and we can help you by sending a formal demand letter and to weigh options on filing a lawsuit if it comes to that. Our cheat sheet on everything you need to know about pets in HOAs and condos will be posted in the chat now. The next question is also from a board member. Can we create an asset preservation fee? So I'm not exactly sure what an asset preservation fee would be, but I think you might be referring to how to create a capital contribution or transfer fee. The law on this type of fee says, a transfer fee is paid to the association for a specified purpose, such as funding the association's reserves or contributing to the association's working capital fund. Transfer fees are sometimes also referred to as capital contribution fees, working capital fees, and or reserve contribution fees. Pursuant to ARS section 33-442, an association can change a transfer fee, capital contribution fee, or reserve assessment fee that becomes due at a close of escrow when the following requirements are met. The CCNRs grant authority for the fee and provide for a specific purpose for the fee. The fee being charged touches and concerns the land. The fee does not go to a third party, such as a management company or a developer, unless the third party developer is authorized in the governing documents to manage the real property within the association or was part of an approved development plan. So our cheat sheet on community association disclosure fees and transfer fees will be posted in the chat as well. Okay, our next question is from a community member. A community member has expressed a concern to the board through the property manager in writing related to a proposed governing document change. In that correspondence, the member requested a written reply. The property manager and board have refused to reply. The original concern was respectful, and it is obvious the decision-making group did not agree with the basis for the stated concern. Not responding to the community member's concerns does not appear to be professionally appropriate and resolves nothing. Your comments? Okay, so our firm thinks it is best to respond to owners' questions to keep the lines of communication open between residents and the board. So we always recommend this. If an owner is asking an unreasonable number of questions, it may be necessary to communicate to the owner that the owner is welcome to attend board meetings to have future questions answered, but that the large volume of questions outside of a meeting is becoming too cumbersome and interfering with the manager's workload. So that's okay to do as well. Our next question is from a board member. We are a gated community. Residents could open gates by using a clicker, but residents were given, giving clickers to friends and it was out of control. We upgraded to a new system, which requires a permanent decal on the car to automatically enter. No clickers. A resident doesn't want the decal on the car and insists we give him a clicker. He says he will sue us because without a clicker or decal, he must pass through the guarded gate like a guest, which is discriminatory because he is a resident. We don't want to make exceptions. Is his discrimination issue valid? Okay, good question. The short answer is no. We don't feel that this owner has a legitimate claim on this matter. The decals are being implemented for the safety of the neighborhood. The complaining owner will need to comply with the association's requirement and place a decal on the car. If the owner refuses to install the decal, the association may need to have another manner for the owner to enter the property. 
Maybe the owner can place a code on a keypad each time they want to enter the association. And this obviously will be a hassle. And I'm sure the owner would prefer at that point to just use the decal. Our next question is from a board member. Can the HOA board purchase property out of the HOA boundary using assessments without a membership vote, then bring said property into the HOA without a vote? So this is a tough question. And without reviewing your CCNRs, it's going to be hard to answer. Um, In order to answer this question, I'd have to review the CCNRs to see if the power is given to the board and to see what the CCNRs state regarding how association funds can be used. Okay, next question is from a community manager. My board wants to know if they can send a violation letter that just says the board reported to me that dot, 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 or does it need to have the name of one board member that says or heard the violation? So the board does not need to disclose the name of the person who complained about the violation unless the owner requests via certified mail for more information regarding the violation. So unless they've requested it via certified mail, the answer is you don't need to give that information. The next question is from a board member. We have restrictive parking regulations in our CCNRs, which a significant majority of the homeowners feel the need to change. Specifically, all vehicles must, except for occasional short periods of time of less than 24 hours, or with the prior written consent exception, the homeowners association be parked in a closed garage. Using the consent exception, the homeowners would like to create a rule or policy to allow the homeowners of certain vehicles, which are qualified under specific conditions, to request permission to park in the driveway for extended periods of time. Can we do that? If not, why? Okay, so the answer on this is if the restrictive parking conditions are in the CCNRs, um, or the restrictive parking regulations are in the CCNRs, the only way to change that is going to be to amend the CCNRs. The association can't pass a rule that conflicts with or provides exceptions to the existing CCNR provision on parking. Okay, the next question is also from a board member. Our association has a wall that separates the community pool and our property. The pool is used by everyone, and there are a total of seven associations that form the community. The wall has been compromised, and an engineer suggested it be rebuilt. A portion of the wall was built by the community 10 years ago. Who is responsible to pay for the cost of redoing the wall? And what proportion of the cost would we be responsible for, if any? This is an interesting question. It it might be helpful for us to take a look at the CCNRs for your association and, and see what the CCNRs state regarding maintenance of the wall. Additionally, there may be agreements between the associations that that cover this issue and cover who is responsible for the cost of redoing the wall. But ultimately, this is a pretty complex question, and we would probably need a little bit more information to answer that fully. So please contact us if you if you would like a little more information on that. Next question is from a board member. Three years ago, the board made a decision to start tracking the rental units in the community and requiring a tenant registration form filled out per state law, as well as in our CCNRs. Regarding the $25 administrative fee and $15 late fee, is that money to go to the association or management company? So this tenant fee is usually negotiated as part of the management agreement. We will go ahead and share our cheat sheet on effectively working with rental properties. 
Okay, the next question is from a board member. When considering a new property management company, what are the legal red flags to look for during the vetting process? So our firm actually has a couple of great cheat sheets on this issue, which we're going to post in the chat as well. The first is going to be how to select a management company. And the second will be qualities of an A-plus community manager. So these should be very helpful in navigating that vetting process. The next question is from an office manager. Some of our board members insist on taking the board of directors packet home with them after a board meeting. This includes agendas and financials and other community discussions. Some of them bring them back, but two of them don't. Should they be allowed to take them home in the first place? The answer is yes. In my opinion, the board should be allowed to keep permanently and or take home the board packet if they want to. The next question is from an accounting representative. This is a new community. When all the houses were built, we went from the temporary HOA to the homeowner's HOA. Can you explain the process of who is initially the temporary HOA during the home building process? A problem exists for two years during the home building, and our management company says the home builder was the temporary HOA and not them. The home building or the home builder tells me the land developer selects the management company and they are the temporary HOA. Both parties point to the other. Our HOA board does not want to deal with this since this happened before they were on the board. Okay, if I'm understanding your question correctly, I believe you're asking about the transition from the developer-controlled board of directors to the homeowner-controlled board of directors. So typically, the developer of the association serves as the board for the association until 75% of the lots or units are sold. However, the transition time is usually set up in the CCNRs and may be different for each association depending on what the CCNRs say. It sounds like your association had some issues during the time the developer was in control of the board. Ultimately, the developer-controlled board is responsible for whatever problems occurred in the association at that time. The management company who was managing the association at the time may also have some liability if they are not living up to the terms of the management contract they had with the association. Not sure what your issues or problems were during this time, but please feel free to contact our office to determine what, if anything, can be done to correct the issues and problems after the fact. My office will also be sharing our cheat sheet on transition from developer to owner control and some problems that may arise as part of the transition process. All right. Next question is from a board member. Do Arizona statutes permit condo HOAs to limit the number or percent of units that can be leased or rented and establish a waiting period after purchase before leasing or renting? So the answer is no, they do not. But our firm advises against limiting the number of percentage of units that can be leased via a CCNR amendment. We feel that it opens the association up to being sued by an owner who doesn't win the rental lottery, but wants to lease the unit. Our firm isn't opposed to a waiting period after purchase before leasing or renting, but this is not something we regularly suggest our clients do. Next question is from a board member as well. We need fines within our rules in order to stop violations of our rules and our CCNRs. What is the most efficient way to accomplish this? Violations are most frequently made by homeowners, vendors, contractors, and subs. Thank you. So the answer on this, one of the larger problems in community associations is obtaining owner compliance with the association documents. It's important to remember that fines are used to get compliance. Associations should not count on them as income. And as for your question on the most efficient way to stop violations, it really depends on the violation. 
Generally speaking, making it hurt in the owner's pocketbook is a good start regardless of the violation. Depending on the violation, self-help by the association may be an effective remedy. Our firm will go ahead and share our recent blog on associations enacting self-help. There is also the last resort option of proceeding with litigation or filing a petition with the Arizona Department of Real Estate. It really just depends on the violation. So we urge you to go ahead and review our cheat sheet on enforcement that our team will share in the chat. Our next question is from a board member. We have a unit that has been vacant for two years since the owner passed. The bank paid the dues until the second quarter of last year. Can we foreclose on this unit? If so, how costly? And could we lose what is owed to us and our legal fees? So in this matter, I would urge you to review our cheat sheet entitled Effective Collection of Delinquent Assessments, which is going to be shared by our team. Under Arizona law, associations can only foreclose if assessments are delinquent for a period of one year or if the owner owes $1,200 or more in assessments, whichever occurs first. So based on the information that you provided in your question, it sounds like this account may meet the foreclosure threshold. And if so, the association may proceed with a foreclosure lawsuit. Prior to proceeding with foreclosure, our firm conducts a thorough evaluation of the file and equity analysis. It's difficult to provide an estimate regarding legal fees as every case is different. However, I would say an undisputed foreclosure lawsuit is a minimum of about $3,500. Our firm would request the court grant the association legal fees and costs as part of the association's judgment, but there's no guarantee this will happen. With any type of litigation, there are potential risks. So please reach out to our firm to assist you with this collection matter. Next question is from, looks like a board member. I would like to know how we deal with residents and owners who are dealing with health issues like dementia and oxygen and are depending on the good hearts of their neighbors. How does the HOA help but not cross lines to contact family members listed in our office files? So Beth actually taught a seminar last year that was entitled People Problems, where she addresses mental illness, hoarding, and also aging residents. And we'll go ahead and share the link for that seminar in this presentation. Let's see. Yes, the link will be queued up to the exact place that Beth talked about managing people problems. Um, I encourage you to watch this seminar. With that being said, here are some general strategies. The first would be to listen, pay attention to the facts, investigate. The board has an obligation to try to help in this situation. It's also important to realize that sometimes you can't win no matter what you do. And then a question to ask yourself would be, is there a city or state agency, relative or neighbor that might be able to help in this situation? So just looking at all the options is a good idea. And then lastly, talk with your trusted advisors, such as management company or legal counsel to see what else can be done. This is definitely an important question and we are here to help you. And we're also going to go ahead and post, an, I believe we're posting another cheat sheet, which is entitled Dealing with Difficult People and Harassment. And wow, it looks like we are all done. All of our questions have been answered. So thank you for joining us for our firm's first Friday free call in event this month. I'm excited to announce also that we will have another free learning opportunity this month. Class number five of our 2022 virtual HOA and condo academy will be held Tuesday, May 17th at 11 a.m. In this session, we'll discuss how HOAs and condos can effectively work with management companies and vendors. As always, the class will end with a live Q&A session. 
next live virtual first Friday free call-in event will be Friday, June 3rd. And we hope to see you for the HOA and Condo Academy class number five later this month. And everybody have a great weekend. Thanks. Don't forget our free cheat sheets are available for download at mulcahylawfirm.com. Please go to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and a review. 